Welcome to the Lucky Let Cord Podcast, a Tennis Now production sponsored by Tennis Express and a proud member of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Chris Otto. Happy to be with you on Sunday, August 30th. We have a special guest today. He's back for a second turn at the mic. It is the venerable Tennis Hall of Famer Steve Flink, who has just completed a book about Pete Sampras called Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited. It's an awesome read that I've just finished. We already discussed the legendary career of Pete Sampras from his formative years all the way up to 1994 in part one of this podcast, so you can click back on our timeline and check out episode number one before you listen to this if you're curious to learn more about one of the greatest players to ever lace him up and show up on a tennis court. That is Pete Sampras. Steve knows him well. He's the right man to write a book about him, and he's done a heck of a job. And we discuss from 1994 on to the end of Sampras's career, including a couple of wonderful sections at the end of this book, which really highlight the nuances and the uniqueness of the Sampras legacy. Uh, it's just a wonderful read, and you guys are about to find out all about Pete Sampras' greatness revisited from Steve Flink himself. So have a listen. Don't forget you can pick up this book starting on September 1st at Amazon.com and other places where you like to find your books. It's called Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited. And here is the venerable Tennis Hall of Famer, Steve Flink. Take it away. Hey, Steve. How are you doing today? Good, Chris. And nice to be back with you. Looking forward to part two of talking about the Pete Sampras book. Yes. Greatness Revisited is the book. And for our listeners um, that didn't listen to part one, you can skip back in our podcast timeline and check out our discussion of Pete Sampras's formative years. We took it from uh, Pete as a youth all the way up to about 1994. And today we're going to continue that discussion. And I'm so looking forward to it, Steve. Oh, so am I, Chris. I just want to go back briefly to... Uh, uh, clarify a point I was making in part one when we were talking about Pete Fisher and grooming Pete Sampras as a servant volleyer, yes. switching him from the two-hander back into the one-hander. And I made a passing reference to Bjorn Borg, and I want to be sure listeners understood what I was getting out there was Borg was kind of an exception in, in terms of what Fisher was thinking of for Sampras because Borg did have a two-hander. Obviously, it was it was one of his trademark shots, but he served and volleyed a lot on the grass at Wimbledon. He made the adjustment. So even he was basically predominantly playing serve and volley tennis at Wimbledon with his two-hander. It's just that it didn't make sense in Fisher's mind, or and ultimately Sampras agreed for Pete to continue having a two-hander if his his goal was to eventually be a Wimbledon champion, be a great fast-court player. Yeah. So I just wanted to make make that point in case people didn't understand what I was saying there. The Bjorn was, he was unusual. Obviously, he was not McEnroe. He was not John Newcomb. He was not a the quintessential servant volleyer with yeah. one-handed back him. But he did he did turn himself into a servant volleyer, on, uh, especially behind the first serve at Wimbledon. So just yeah. wanted to make that point. Cool. That's great. And, you know, speaking of serving and volleying, I, I think I wanted to start this discussion with a, a little bit of a, you know, revisit of Sampras's serve it, overall, his, how good his serve was. And then, of course, that second serve, because um, if people haven't seen Sampras play, they just have no idea of how amazing that shot was for him. It was phenomenal. He, he uh, and it got uh, in, increasingly effective over the second half of his career, the years that we're going to be talking about, uh, 94 on, really, especially 97 on, because what happened is he started to, he picked and choosed a lot in the early years when he wasn't on grass about how often he would serve and volley on the second serve, but mm. often he would stay back on it. And sometimes guys could get away with blocking returns down the middle of pretty big second serves, knowing or anticipating that he wasn't going to serve and volley behind the second. But then that changed and from really 97 on yeah. through 02 you know it w he was just fearsome because he would he would serve in volley almost almost entirely at first and second serve and the second serve just got bigger and bigger and he was willing to risk uh, a certain number of double faults knowing that uh the percentages were on his side that he you know that he he had so much confidence in the second serve he didn't worry about a few double faults here and there because he felt he could hit so many big second serves that were comparable to first serves 
that it would be worth it. And obviously you saw in the book that Jim Courier was uh, uh, sort of sardonically saying to uh, Tom Gullickson after the 93 Wimbledon final when Pete beat him, he said, how do, how do you beat a guy that has two first serves? Yeah. And that was the pre- that was the prevailing view among most of his opponents. It, maybe there's no such thing as a second serve with Pete Sampras, particularly the the, the Pete Sampras of 97 on. Mm, yeah, it's, and it's fascinating because these days we watch tennis and we rarely see players serve in volley, let alone on their second serve. And when they do, we, we consider it almost like, oh my gosh, he, he, came, in, he came in behind his second serve. But, he, but Pete did it with regularity. And I want to put the question to you, was this in, uh, partly uh, from him working with Paul Anacone, which I think those guys started together in, was it 95-ish? Yeah, he stepped in in 95. It partially, I think Paul was always encouraging him to serve in volley on the second serve, but it was something that Tim Gullickson really wanted Sampras to do more of, and I think Pete just had to get the confidence. He always was confident doing it at Wimbledon. He just had to get the confidence, self-conviction to to do that on hard courts and indoors as well and keep sort of bearing down on those, on those guys and breathing down their necks and and uh, so it, 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 it evolved. And uh, I think it would have happened under Gullickson, too, but no doubt that Anacone made a significant contribution in that area. Yeah, and we're talking about second serves at about 120 um, quite often from Sampras. I mean, some serious heat on that second serve. Yeah, there, would be, there wouldn't be a big disparity. Uh, uh, Tom Gullickson talk, talked about that. I, I, I quoted him in the book talking about that. You know, often that the... the be about a 10 mile an hour difference between first and second serves, which is extraordinary. And uh, he just, even on the biggest points, I mean, I remember, you know, in the uh, once in the 90, match point in the 99 Wimbledon final against Agassi, you know, he missed the first serve and he just goes for a big second serve right down the tee, an inch inside mm. the sideline, not far from the service line itself, aces him on the second serve to finish off the match. And not terribly unusual for him. Because he had the guts to go for it, and he, and he, again, he didn't. He knew there was some risk of a double fault, but he wasn't terribly concerned about it because he believed in himself and he believed in that second serve. And he said, he said, Chris, uh, uh, he mentioned to me in the book, he thought at a certain point, the second serve became even more feared by his opponents. He, he felt like he was known even more for that than he was for his great running forehand, which is uh-huh. really, which is really saying something. Yeah. I mean, it feels like from a returner's perspective, there's there's just no reprieve. Like, you just don't get a break. There's nothing you can tee off on when you're playing against Sampras. Yeah, and also the, the placement was so impeccable that you, it was very hard to read. It. Particularly the first serve was hard to read, but there were a lot of times the second serve was hard to read. Hmm. And, and you'd figure, okay, he's going to go serving to the ad court. It's going to go deep to the backhand. He's going to be looking to set up the first volley. And instead he'd go right down the tee and, and ace you. So you just, you couldn't really anticipate. You couldn't read, you couldn't read that serve. Yeah. Gilbert, Brad Gilbert mentioned that in regard to Agassi in the book. He said, you know, and no matter how many times he played him, he just never had a beat. He never had a read on that serve. It didn't matter how many times they played and they played 34 times. He always struggled to figure out where it was going. Yeah. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, so we left off in 1994. I believe we had gone through um, Sampras winning three majors in succession for the first yep. time, and he's really blossoming as a player. Of course, it took him a while after his first major title, which he won in 1990, just about 30 years ago as a 19-year-old, and it took him a while to really find himself as a player. But once he hits his stride there in '94. Um, you were there in person watching all of it closely. Um, what is what is the talk about with Pete Sampras? Do people have any idea that he's about to do what he actually does do over the next six, seven years at Wimbledon and overall on the tour? There was a sense of sense of that uh, clear possibility. But what was going on in 94, Chris, above all else, was that he was you could see he was how, how confident he was becoming. And in that first half of the year, he won eight tournaments. Wimbledon was his eighth. That's a lot of titles for half a year. And then unfortunately for him, I think, and I think he was set up, he would have had a great chance to win three majors that year. Uh, I mean, yes, he lost at the French, but I think he would have gone on to win the U.S. Open, likely. But then unfortunately for him, he got hurt in a Davis Cup match against Krychek uh, over the summer, and that messed up his whole summer. He really couldn't play any hardcore tournaments leading up to the Open. And he was on the bicycle, he was trying to stay in shape, but he wasn't in tennis shape. 
So there was really no chance for him to win that 94 Open. And it kind of, it just sort of, it, it disrupted his year. It was still a great year. He won a couple more tournaments in the fall and finished number one, but, and won the year, ATP year-end championships and won the Masters. And that was great, but there was no doubt he was a little more up and down after he came back because it, everything had just been sort of turned upside down by that injury over the summer. Up until then, he'd been almost unbeatable. Hmm. And if we inch forward to 1995 we see that uh, Pete had his share of um, struggles off the court as well uh, an emotional moment in 95 when he's playing against Jim Courier the struggles uh, the health struggles of his coach Tim Gullickson were prominent in his mind and um, it really took a toll on him I mean can, this is an, this is really a Sampras moment that pretty much everybody has heard of but what can you what kind of insight can you give me into what this moment was was like for him as a as a player and how it really shaped him in the next couple of years so you want to talk about the the, the Jim Courier match in Australia is that the, the really not not so the moment, yes, but really more about the health struggles of Tim Gullickson and, and how it, how Pete was able right. to kind of internalize it and then also deal with it and how he's able to come out of that maybe even stronger, which, you know, it, it was really not an easy thing for him to play through, as we all saw there, you know, at, no, in Australia. No, you're right. You're right. Well, so it, it, Gullickson had had some, some curious moments. So there were, clearly there was something going on, his health, going on with his health in the fall of 94. Nobody knew quite what it was yet, but then... Then they, you know, some there was a terrible incident in the locker room, and they during that '95 Australian Open, and they had to take Tim Gullicks into the hospital, and eventually he was diagnosed with brain tumors, and but that was definitely weighing on Sampras's mind, and there was a big dinner, and the night before he played Jim Curry in a memorable quarterfinal where he came from two sets to love down and broke down in tears early in the fifth. Uh, you know, just uh, thinking about uh, Tim and what was going on with him. And at that point, Tim had flown back home to, that's where he was diagnosed with, with the brain tumors. But uh, yeah, that was a very difficult stretch. First finding out that Gullickson was that ill and, and then just, and learning about the brain tumor, staying in touch with him, adjusting to Paul Anacone, becoming his, his interim and eventually full-time coach. And, uh, it, it, it definitely affected his performances, Chris. It, 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 they were uneven over the first half of 95, and why wouldn't they be? But I think I think it sort of came to a – I think people saw us out of Pete. I, I, we should talk briefly about that with the Courier match because for him to break down in tears early in the fifth set of a big match against a key rival, uh, that that was not like him. Uh, they saw that the, the the world saw a side of him that they'd never witnessed before. Because they 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 saw him unfairly in more robotic terms. They just thought he was sort of imperturbable, unshakable. Didn't show it. Didn't like to reveal his emotions a lot. He did internalize a lot. And here he was, literally fighting the tears back and serving aces through his tears and eventually beating Courier. But that was that was a an interesting moment in terms of the public consciousness and them understanding Pete more as a human being, who who you know a, a very. Uh, vulnerable human being like the rest of us and one that it was was sort of letting down a shield and letting them see a side of him they'd never seen before yeah that is very interesting because you know you interview pete extensively for this book and we get to know him so much better on a personal level which is which is so revealing and fantastic um, but he always talks about how he liked to keep things close to his vest and here's the situation where he just simply could not do it and then the public finally got a glimpse of, into a little bit more of who he really was and i think that really helped us understand him at the time it did there's no doubt about it and that mo that got a lot of play that match was shown on television and back in the states and many people saw it and were were kind of were stunned by it to a degree but where they they it was poignant because they 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 uh they they it was poignant for them to see Pete Sampras revealing the, his inner innermost emotions and out in the professional arena during a major tournament against Jim Curry and of course there was a that memorable moment when Courier saw him crying and said, Pete, he looked across the net and said something in effect, we could do this tomorrow. And it maybe people thought it was sarcastic at the time, but as Jim explains in the book, it was really anything but. He was trying to sort of bring him back into his playing mode. And and it actually helped. It actually helped. Yeah. And, and Pete explained that he wasn't upset with Jim. It was really not so much Jim. It was the crowd kind of laughing or he interpreted that way that they were almost mocking him. Uh, that's what bothered him, and that's what sort of snapped him out of it and allowed him to come back and 
finish off that fifth set and win the match. But that was that was a defining moment, I would say, in terms of someone. Def- he he defined his character. He he he, he displayed for the public a, a side of him that would normally be only private. Yeah, yeah. And in that same year, later in the year, Pete has a pretty amazing moment playing for the Stars and Stripes and Davis Cup uh, in Moscow. And, and he does some, maybe has one of his best, I'm going to ask you the question, but he maybe has one of his best clay court moments of his career. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that moment? And do you think that it was the best he performed on clay? You can you could argue that it was. We have to keep in mind that it was indoors. So indoors always speeds things up. That helps. Okay. It, you know, he would have much preferred to have been playing on an indoor hard court or something quicker, to be sure. But it did help that to offset the surface a little that they were playing indoors at the end of the year. But he had not expected, even though he was the number one player in the world, the fact that it was clay, Chris. I remember talking to him a few months before that, and he would have been fine if the if Agassi and Courier had played the um, singles and he yeah. maybe just played doubles, I would have been okay with him. But the fact was that Agassi had been kind of nursing, you know, he had some kind of an injury, and also I think he was sort of psychically wounded by losing to Sampras in the U.S. Open final a few months earlier. So he really went over there, but he was never going to play. He went over there just to support the team. And uh, so Pete had to, was called into action, and, of course, he won that in, in – excruciatingly uh, long match with Chesnikov, the five set of the first day where he collapsed after match point and had to be carried into the locker room and cramping. And it was, it was pretty traumatic, but then he still came back the next day, won the doubles with Todd Martin and then sealed it for the U S on Sunday by beating Yevgeny Kafelnikov, who of course was, of course was the best Russian player who eventually ended up in the hall of fame. It was a, it was an, an astonishing three days and, and I, I suppose, you know, indoors or not, you have to consider it one of the, the clay court highlight of his career. Maybe second place would be beating Becker to win the Italian Open in 94. But this was, considering that he was winning the Davis Cup for the U.S. and doing it almost single-handedly, I think that, yeah. was, one of, that was a standout performance. And do you think that the Pete's, I guess you could call it a lack of success at Roland Garros, unable to win the title, even get to a final... Um, do you think it was a product of the fact that it, it didn't matter that much to him? Or was he really just outmatched by so much think, in that era on clay? Yeah, I don't think, Chris, that it was that he was – he didn't care. He definitely cared. He cared about every major. The problem was that Wimbledon was always around the corner. Wimbledon was always the overriding goal. It was the tournament that meant more to him than any other. Not to say that he was looking past the French, but still, he it was he it, there wasn't a big gap, only a couple of weeks. So he, that was always on his mind, peaking at Wimbledon. And the other thing was, I just felt like he never targeted the French in a way that perhaps he could have, that might have made the difference and enabled him to win it once. Is that I, I think maybe if one of those years, okay, this is my year, I'm going all like Yvonne Lendl one year skipped the French to to try to push hard for Wimbledon, which didn't work, but it was not a bad idea to that particular year to say, you know what, I'm going after Wimbledon. I'm going to even forego the French this year because I really want that Wimbledon title. Pete didn't, wasn't willing to go that far where maybe he would have played more on clay or just sort of geared up in a different way. So I just feel there were years in the 90s that he could have won it. 94 was definitely one of them, and he lost to Curry in the quarters. And 96 was another where he was worn out by the time he lost to Kafelnikov in the semis after three five setters. So hmm. I just think it, it, he didn't really – I think in the, he kept thinking there would be opportunities. I think had he known that the opportunities were going to diminish and he was going to start losing earlier there and his runs to the quarters and then once to the semis were going to stop, Right. I think I think his attitude his his mindset might have been different because I really believe that in that period of ninety four five six, really in there somewhere in there he was definitely when he was the best player in the world and 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 doing and and a couple of those years doing very well in Paris that he was fully capable of winning it ninety four for sure you know uh, had he beaten Courier maybe he plays Bouguera. He ends up Barisatigi and the two Spaniards in the final. He's can, can he beat them? I think so. You know he beat he beat to Bruguera in '96 and then '96. If he beats Kafelnikov, even with all the exhaustion, and that was an impo- one of those impossibly oppressive days in Paris, which the days where Pete really felt literally felt the heat more than a lot of other players did, yeah. and it cost him because he lost to Kafelnikov after a tiebreaker. He got blitzed in the next two sets. 
and lost in straight. But he would have played Michael Steak in the final. And Michael Steak was someone who did very well against Pete. They had a pretty even career record, but uh, it wouldn't have been a typical clay court match. Michael was more geared toward fast courts, too, so they wouldn't have had long rallies. The points would have gone by relatively quickly, and it would have been physically much more comfortable. Yeah. So I really think that either of those years, he, he, it, it, looking back, I think had he known, he, would have, he could well have come away with a title in either 94 or 96. Hmm. Well, you mentioned Steak did fairly well against Sampras. That's something that not many people can say. When reading your book and going through all the head-to-heads of different players against Sampras, you come to realize that nobody had an edge against this guy. Yeah, none of his none of his chief rivals. That was the great part of it. Is if you looked at you know the overwhelming record, sixteen and four against Courier, twenty and fourteen against Agassi, nice edge against twelve and six against Ivanisevic. You know he bested Becker, Chang, all all of the guys that were his premier rivals, which it says a lot because obviously you look at it now and Roger is going to probably end up with a losing record against Rafa and Novak. Rafa is going to end up probably with a losing record against Novak. Novak may have something of a Sampras distinction in this era if he's able to hold mm-hmm. on to those winning records against both Rafa and Roger. But that that tends to be the case with certain players that, that even against premier rivals, they struggle with some of them. Pete, Pete really, uh, that was not the case. The bigger the rival, the better he tended to play. Mm. Pete Sampras... As I've come to realize, I mean, I mean, I've made so many more realizations about who he was as a player and a competitor, but really the ultimate competitor. And I think in 1996, U.S. Open quarterfinals against Alex Karecha, that match, if you didn't know it already, you learned what kind of a, a fighter, what kind of a, a really a pugilist Pete Sampras was. That was that moment. I think there's a tie in a parallel, Chris, to the Courier match at the Australian the year before. Because in the Courier match, we saw the tears. In the Karecha match, which is a five-setter and interminable, and Karecha made Pete play it more on his terms. He kept looping that heavy topspin backhand and drawing Pete into long rallies that were not in Pete's best interest. And eventually, Sampras saves a match point and wins it in the fifth-set tiebreak. But early in the fifth-set tiebreak, uh, Sampras, you know, slumped over and threw up on the court you know he hadn't really he had his eating and schedule was a little thrown off there was a match earlier that went longer than expected he just hadn't really time and maybe didn't have enough fluids in him plus there was this inner tension building up because it's the last major of the year he hadn't won a major up until that point in 96 and he really didn't want to come away from 96 without one of the grand slam crowns in his possession so I think there was tremendous pressure building up in him. Plus you had this problem with the fluids and the food. So he threw up and it was kind of a cruel moment because the umpire had to then give him a little warning. He he, he had to warn him and he had to kind of quickly walk up and serve, yeah. walked up, stood behind the baseline and just spun a first serve in quickly. So as not to get, get himself a point penalty. I mean, he had to, he had to get moving. And uh, th- those were the, that was the cruelty of the rules. And he eventually, in very dramatic fashion, you know, with a lunging volley, saved the match point, and then, uh, you know, it, he he comes back and and wins it on a courageous double fault, and and that was that. But what was great about that match was the crowd, the vociferous crowd support for Sampras, the chanting his name, Pete, 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 in a way that he'd never seen or experienced or felt before. From they'd always been very supportive, but the crowd understood his vulnerability on, on this occasion and really got behind him. And so, and they appreciated the fact that here he was going from being literally sick on the court to finding a way to prevail in that tiebreak. Now it was fortunate for him that it was a tiebreak that they didn't play out the fifth set. And at that yeah. time, you know, the only major to do it and that, but ne- nonetheless, it was still, he was having to get bogged down in some tough points with Karecha. Karecha is one of the wiliest players in the business. And, that, yeah, I'd say there's a clear parallel to Courier 95 in the sense it was another character-defining moment and a chance for the crowds to see him, uh, see that vulnerability and how he overcame it. Right. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because it's he's reluctantly giving himself to the crowd. He's, as you say, imperturbable, and he wants to keep it close to the vest, but he's suffering so much that he can't keep it in. Yeah, and, exactly. And the crowd's like, "Oh my God, this we had, we had no idea how like how how empty the tank is for this guy right now." Yeah, absolutely. And they responded. They really responded. And they're they're 
the the cheering and the screaming and the the you know it, you could it was almost tangible you could you know you didn't have to hear it you felt it and he sure and he sure he surely did and seldom has he ever needed that kind of support more than he did that afternoon and early evening uh, there was a quote I think towards the end of the book there's there's some great sections at the end where you get into legacy and you you have bring in all your heavy hitting guests which are which are there are so many but i think it's todd martin that says he was a he was an athlete he was an athlete not a celebrity it was just a simple statement but it it's something of a of a bygone era almost like he he really was not mixed up in any of that stuff he was he was almost shy and in the book you talk you have quotes from him that i found really fascinating where he says uh, he was almost embarrassed at times out there about like if he if he overreacted to something um, he was he's really an interesting character the way he comported himself on the court yeah i mean todd knew him well you're right that was a good quote from todd and todd understood him well they were pretty good friends and and doubles partners in that in davis cup there and they really knew each other well and and uh yes pete and 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 todd reinforced what you're saying about how pete felt about he would embarrass didn't want to embarrass himself more importantly didn't want to embarrass his family and yet he did have personality. He, he, he could be emotive to a degree in a, in, a, in a nice way, in a very positive way with the fist pumping and the, the expressions and the, and the quiet intensity. But no, he felt he, 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 being, a, being a great sportsman was, was paramount to him. And yes, you competed hard. You played as hard as you could, but you played by the rules. And Martina Navratilova talked about how, unlike a lot of today's players, you didn't see him taking bathroom breaks or pulling any shenanigans. He was just a straightforward uh, warrior out there. And, yeah. I, and, and I, I, you're right. I, I, what was fun about that part of the book, uh, Chris, was, the, um, was a lot. The, there were so many things these people had said, like Navratilova and Billie Jean King and Courier and all the rest of them, that, but they didn't have room for them. I used their quotes earlier in the book, but there wasn't really room during the narrative of all those years and all those matches. So I felt I had to do a separate compartment on the legacy, and I'm glad I did because that allowed me to bring in these people in a different way to talk about Pete's character, not just his tennis, but his character. And I, so I thought the legacy chapter in that respect was a, was a crucial one. Yes, I was, gonna, I was going to ask you about that, so we might as well address it now. Like, um, you, We go through the Sampras's career chronologically, and then and then the, the career comes to a, um, a glittering end at the U.S. Open, and then he decides not to play anymore. And I'm thinking, well, there's about 30, 40 pages left here. What's going to happen? And then you you go into this legacy section. You have a, a little a little section called an outstanding sportsman, and then it, there's just so many. It's chock full of so many goodies. And the evolution of Sampras' game and tactical acumen was fascinating. The, some of those quotes at, at the end. I mean, you finished with a flourish there. So you. Th- those were kind of ideas that came to you based on the how much good stuff you got in your interviews. You're like, well, I might as well use these for like, it's sort of like a, a B-side of a single or something. Yeah, I think so. I put it even higher than that. I just felt that as I was writing the career chapters and going through that chronologically, and, 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 I, and you, you noticed, I'm sure, that I did use quotes there that pertain to his character and his tennis and different overviews of Pete, but there was just so much more depth to what these people were saying that I said, wait a second, I can't waste it. Where am, where, where am I going to use this? And then it hit me. I'll do yeah. a legacy chapter. I've got to do the legacy chapter to talk in a general way about the evolution of his game, to talk about his sportsmanship, to talk about different aspects of him and his tennis career that really did not fit into the main part of the book. And and in that section uh, on his, the outstanding sportsman section, he was compared to the old Aussies, which I loved. Uh, the Rose Wall, I, I think it was Emerson. I think it might have been Martina who said he was kind of yeah. like a Rod Laver in a sense. And you, right. and you and you're like, yes, that's that's really what he was like. He was he was kind of cut from a different cloth, and there really isn't anybody like that anymore. Yeah, Laver was obviously one of his idols growing up, and that kind of came about through his coach Pete Fisher, because Fisher was such a big admirer of Laver and Rosewell, and both those guys were outstanding sportsmen in their in their own rights as well. And yes, Laver, there there's definitely similarities. Laver was very self-effacing, like Pete. Laver behaved impeccably. Laver let his racket do the talking. Yes, they're they're, they're dis- 
distinct similarities between Rod Laver and Pete Sampras, and, and you know, they they know each other not not that well, but I think there's a there's sort of a, a real appreciation between them about how they each conducted themselves in the arena, and Laver certainly must have seen a great deal of himself in Pete Sampras. Yeah, and and that chapter, um, the Sampras legacy, chapter seventeen, that was amazing. Um, but it got even better at the end, and, and we're, but we're not going to get into that yet. Be, um, the uh, imagining Sampras against uh, the big three, which I love. But before that, let's let's circle back and get back into his career. And I want to just ask you about Pete Sampras at Wimbledon. Never lost a final. Probably, you know, I don't know. Perhaps the greatest men's singles player on grass that ever was. I think he was. I really do. I mean, you you probably saw it. I mean, Mary Carrillo said that that when Pete was winning it, those are the days when the grass was, was played like grass. It was faster. It was, you know, with a, more the way it traditionally had been. Sometimes a little uneven with the bounces, but still, it was just a it was a fast playing court. They've slowed it down now. Uh, we that's another discussion about how he would have adjusted to that. But I but it's just that point being that in his day looking at who he played in those finals yes he starts off with Jim Courier which was tricky you know and Jim had adjusted well to the grass and served and volleyed a surprising number of times himself and really made a match of it and then he goes on then he had to play two finals against Ivan Isovich in 94 and 98 which frankly is a nightmare for anybody Absolutely. to play this big serving left-handed Croatian and one of the great serves of all time and so he had a couple against him. He had Boris Becker in the 95 final, one of the great Wimbledon players himself with three titles. And, you know, prior to Pete, you know, in that open era, he, he, he was an extraordinary uh, servant volleyer and a, just a powerhouse. And Sampras dismantled him in the 95 final. And then you have, uh, you know, you have a 97 went pretty smoothly. He played Pialine, which was maybe one of his easier finals, but then he has to come back with, with Ivan Isovich again, as I said, in 98, and back to Agassi in 99, who was playing the best grass court tennis of his career, better than he, frankly, better than he played by a wide margin than he'd even played in the 92 Wimbledon that he won. And finally, it's Pat Rafter in the 2005. Yeah. If you look at that cast of characters, Pat, of course, a great servant volleyer right out of the Australian tradition, and, and, and one of the really great volleyers of, of, of his time. So he had to deal with so many different kinds of players. He had a loss amid, in, in the midst of all that. He had one loss to Krychek, and Krychek was a great servant volleyer himself. So I think Pete had to face so many different types of players, different, uh, you know, different games. That it, 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 so there was more variety and, and more danger in some ways. So to win that tournament seven times, never lose a final in that era, I I, 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 I I definitely believe that he was the greater grass court player than Roger Federer, and that's taking nothing away from Roger, who's won more, won more title than Pete. Yeah, it's uh, quite a legacy he left there. Um, what, what would you say, having been there so many years and watched him up close on center court, what would you say some of the most gratifying and, and essential Sampras moments were on that court? Most gratifying. Well, you know, I'd say the first one that was such a, there was such deep relief and exaltation combined to win that because he'd gone almost the three years from the 90 open all the way to the 93 Wimbledon. Now he finally has another major and it's the tournament that he means more to him than any other, even though he's an American and he loves the U.S. Open. Wimbledon is the dream tournament for him growing up and he finally wins it. So that one was special. I would say uh, I would then say. It's harder to say after that because 94 was great because he was so dominant and he beat Ivanisevic in straight and nice comeback against Becker from a set down in 95. I would say the hmm. very gratifying was 98 because he felt like Ivanisevic had outplayed him. Right. And Ivanisevic felt the same way. And I think that was generous of Pete because I don't think it was that simple, but he could have been down two sets to love and he saved a couple of set points with sec second serves. That uh, that produced errant returns from Ivanisevic off the backhand, and and then he eventually came back, won that tiebreak, won it in five sets. That was special. It was the only five-set final, uh, Grand Slam final of his career, and he managed to win it. And and then I think the 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 signature moment, if you really want to single out one, would be the the '99 final where he beat Agassi six three six four seven five. Never lost his serve against the greatest returner in the sport, and. 
that that in in my mind was the best tennis match he ever played anywhere in the world and so to do it on the center court of Wimbledon at that time in his prime that that was that was to me a singular moment Hmm. and he did he correct me if I'm wrong did he pass Emerson for the all-time record yeah, yeah, on, you on know that. that of course, the... uh, no, no, he tied. That was a tie. That was a tie. Okay, okay. He, he, tied he broke. Him, so... He broke it. He broke it against Rafter. And yes, then, of yes, course, we so. can't leave the Rafter moment out. Not so much for the tennis. It was, a, it was another escape in a way similar to Ivanisevic because he was down a set and then four-one in the second set tiebreak, and it, things were looking pretty gloomy at that stage. But he pulled the tiebreak out and he eventually beat Pat in four sets. And his parents were there and they'd never been there to see him win a major before. And his fiance was there and it was. He said that was about as close to perfect as life has ever been for him. And uh, obviously that was the record breaker. And that was another moment, by the way, shouldn't leave out the fact that he started to break down in tears as he walked up to the net to greet Rafter. All the emotions just flooding through him because he played injured the whole most of the tournament and uh, how to get injections before each match. And it was just a harrowing experience. And then to have it end with his parents there in the stands and to have the record and have a seventh title at Wimbledon. It was, it was just an extraordinarily uh, gratifying moment. Yeah. That, that was pretty impressive. The, the way he was able to deal with the, the ankle injury and, and, and fight through it. Those are some of the stories that I really, really appreciate, maybe really appreciate him as a competitor, as a fighter. Um, this guy was tough. Well, I hope this... Chris, I hope, I hope what came through, uh, what I really wanted readers to, to understand was that, this notion that it was just all so easy for him. He was just a great athlete. He was a great champion. He was so gifted. So all he had to do was just put it on automatic pilot and go out on the court and just win. And, and, but what I was trying to bring through with the descriptions of these matches was it wasn't always that simple. And talent or no talent, there are a lot of other gifted players on the other side of the net. And uh, there was so much grit and so much determination and so yeah. much perseverance and that was, I think, what the other players revered that as much as they did whatever his, his, his wide range of gifts for the game were. It was, it was the way he competed. I, I just feel that he's a terribly underrated competitor because he did it so quietly, but he fought so ferociously with that, with that quiet intensity. And I think those, the evenness of his 98 Wimbledon final and then the, the 2000 final against Rafter, the record breaker, those, are the, those two showed it in... In, with flying colors, just how, just what a steely competitor he was. Yeah, and and segueing off of that, into, into if we go back a year or two to 1998 in his quest to finish the year at number one for the sixth consecutive year, that was uh, another example of his grit and determination. It was, because what was fascinating about that year was he made up his mind at a certain point in the middle of the season, or maybe even early. I, I don't even, I never really asked him precisely when he set out, when he had it in the back of his mind that he had to finish that year. Number one, it was his goal every year to finish the year. Number one, he didn't worry that much Chris about where he stood on August the 10th or October the 1st. It was the year end ranking. Cause that would, defi that was defining who was the best player for the entire year. And just that year alone, rather than a 52-week cycle from June one year to June the next. But at some point in that year, he said, I've got to have that record. Nobody's ever done it before. Yes, Bill Tilden back in his era, but nobody in the modern era had. Nobody in the open era had. Jimmy. He was tied with Jimmy Connors, who did it from 74 through 78 with five years in a row. So he really – but what it did was it put him under just uh, almost unbearable pressure at times. So it, it actually made him play worse in some respects. Of all the years that he was number one, that was not the best. He had moments. He, he played some spectacular tennis, but it was more sporadic. He won only four tournaments that year, which was the, the fewest number that he had in, in any of his number one campaigns. And it was just an ordeal for him at the end, going over to Europe and playing week after week after week. And it, there was the moment... In, <laughs> He broke his racket once when playing against Jason Stoltenberg of Australia and stunned the fans. And that, that was not like him, but there were, he, there, he just, he was putting himself in, in into the pressure cooker. He just wanted that record so badly. And uh, Rafter and, and Marcelo Rios were within range of him. It came right down to the wire, the year end championships, and he sealed it there. But he was really driving himself a bit nuts in pursuit of that honor. But it, it also meant, the world to him when he achieved it. So
So it's it's an interesting year looking back because Wimbledon was the key to it. He had to have a major in his mind to feel worthy of number one, and then to 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 just keep pounding away in the fall and having to do it so methodically and losing some frustrating matches in the process. It it was it, it, what a rewarding honor that was to finish number one six years in a row. And as he said, it's a beast. And it, it, will anybody do it again? Well, Roger, Rafa, and Novak, none of them are going to have six years in a row, number one. They might do six total years. They all have five right now. But none of them will have will have the distinction of tying Pete with, with six years in succession. Reminds me a bit of Borg. You know, Borg and Federer both winning five Wilmans in a row. It's very hard to keep doing it year after year. And uh, that and number one also means that you've you've had to perform well in a variety of circumstances across a long span of time during the year and surpass everybody else. So he he understood the magnitude of that moment and the imp- the importance of achieving it. And I think therefore it's it means more to him in some ways than even the fourteen Grand Slam titles. That's pretty cool. I mean, yeah, that's one that's one record that is indicative of the consistent greatness of Sampras in those years. And, and he still got it, unlike the slams, which is it's crazy that it's, what is it, 18 years after his career's over and, and there's three guys ahead of him. And that, that's just so wild to think of. But, I mean, doesn't diminish the, the legacy at all. But, but what's interesting to me is that his, his career does end relatively early. There, after winning that 13th slam at Wimbledon that you spoke of, beating Rafter, there's there's not much left to do. What's it like for him post-2000? Um, is there something that, that kind of, does he kind of take a breath and look around and say, you know, maybe I've, he doesn't, I don't have the motivation anymore? Does it happen quickly? Does it happen slowly? How does it all kind of unwind for Pete? Well, I think it started that, you know, achieving that number one honor was such was so important in his mind, took so much out of him that he didn't play the Australian at the start of the next year. He was just too fatigued mentally. And it wasn't so much physical. It was emotional. And um, so that was kind of a that was sort of the start of it in a way. And then he ended up having a great middle of 99 when he won Wimbledon and at one stage four tournaments in a row with Queens Club Wimbledon and two hard, hardcore tournaments in the States. And he would have been primed to win the U.S. Open, and it didn't happen because he, he hurt his back. But um, it was starting to build up. And then 2000, no doubt, when he broke the record, that's what he'd been seeking for so long and talking about it for so long. And every press conference, knowing that the reporters were going to query him again about that quest. So, um, yeah, he, so, so by the, when, after Wimbledon, there's no doubt. Then, then, then he just found himself saying, OK, I, 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 I'm never, I'm never going to – my obsession with number one is gone. My obsession with the majors is somewhat gone. I still want to win more, but it was all about icing on the cake. But then I, then I think what happened, Chris, was because of that, oh, he, he darn near won the Open later in the summer, had a great escape against Krychek on his way to the finals, and he was playing well, and then he just ran into a red-hot Marat Safin who just played the match of his career and beat Sampras in straight sets. So that was a little surprising. Those are the days when no days off between the semis and the final. And then the next year he struggled a lot in 01, but then had a spectacular open where he beat all the guys that had taken the title since he'd last won the U.S. Open in 96. He knocked off Rafter, who, of course, won it in 97 and 98. And then he beats Agassi in epic quarterfinal, four tiebreakers, no service oh breaks, no breaks at all for either player, just a gem of a match. So he beats Agassi, who was the 99 champion, and then he avenges the loss to Safin, who'd won in 2000, beats him in the semis, and yet there still was one more match to play. After all of that, after beating those three guys, and then he has to play Hewitt, and he just, he, it, he lost, again, it was somewhat like a Felnikoff at the French Open of 96. He loses a tiebreak in the first, and then he just, he lost one and one in the last two. That just, that kind of thing just did not happen to him. As great a returner as Leighton Hewitt was, uh, Sampras can't lose sets like that one and one. He didn't give up at all. It just it was it was just that he emotionally and physically depleted. There was there was no spark left. So he wasn't playing badly in this stage of this 33 tournament drought leading up to the 002 Open. But it, I guess what happened was it was it was so in the back of his mind he always knew he could still do it. And then I think that maybe the best blessing in disguise was losing to George Bastel, the lucky loser out on court two. <laughs> At Wimbledon, famous match. Yeah, yes. and he lost in five sets, and it was just demoralizing. But he, then he, 
he had sort of he had parted ways with Paul Anacone and brought in Tom Gullickson for a while and brought in Jose Higueras and Tom Gullickson were coaching him and but after that loss to Basel, he immediately called Anacone and asked him to come back and Anacone quickly agreed and then he didn't have a great summer but he comes to the open as the number 17 seed and I think at that point he was determined you know not not in a vengeful way but in a prideful way to prove his critics wrong he knew how many people were writing him off and then midway through the tournament third round match five sets against Greg Ruzetsky Ruzetsky insults him by saying after the match you know you you think is this the same Pete Sampras you know 13 time Grand Slam champion he's not he's a step slower half a step slower you know it's not the same player and and Pete said that that really that really didn't motivate him, but it certainly stirred up a lot of talk among others. And I I just think he it was the cumulative effect of so many critics, whether it was Rosetsky or or writers or coaches or whoever was disparaging him, to say to them, no, you don't know me, and 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 you you may think I can't win another major, but I'm going to win this major, and just watch me. You know, I'm I'm talking about an internal voice. Obviously, he never said that outwardly. And that was just a, it was just stunning what happened to him after he beat Rosetsky in that third round match to go to beat Tommy Haas in four and Haas had beaten him earlier in the summer. And then he, he knocks off uh, Andy Roddick who had had a two and zero record against him up until that time. In a, and he beats Roddick in straight sets. Roddick of course would win the tournament the la- the next year. He's the last American man to win a major in singles. And, and then Pete beat Cheng Shawkin in the semis and finally it culminates with a force that win fittingly over Agassi, the same guy that he beat in the 1990 final. So he sort of, it, it, there's sort of bookends there, his first and last majors being in New York, beating Agassi in the finals and both times against the odds because Agassi was clearly favored to beat him in 90. And, and then in 02, you know, he'd had a much better year than Pete and, and he'd come off a win over Hewitt, the defending champion. So a lot of people felt that Agassi was going to do it that year. Pete toppled him in four sets, and it was, it was, it was spectacular. And the first two sets, by the way, were almost reminiscent of Wimbledon '99. Couldn't quite sustain that standard in the third and fourth, but he played really well in the fourth to finish it off. And then, of course, he took some some time and made didn't make up his decision till well into the 2003 season. But as it turned out, that match with Agassi was his last match, and gradually he came to realize he just did not want to. The, the incentive was gone, the motivation was gone, and he had a chance to go out on top, which was wise because if he had played on, Chris, I think it might have been a mistake. He he could well have played on and maybe had a pretty good Wimbledon the next year, but would it have been worth it to go to the semis of Wimbledon and lose to somebody? The only standard would be to win it. So he was able to leave the game uh, having won his last match by beating Andre Agassi in the finals of the U.S. Open for his 14th major his 64th career crown and his fifth U.S. Open title. I mean, what what could be better than that? No, it's perfect. A full circle moment too, coming back against Agassiz's greatest rival. And I mean, and a year after that amazing match, which I which I was watching last night, that 2001 quarterfinal was just riveting. It's just, that's just a ridiculous level of tennis they played, and, so and, true. and a ridiculous atmosphere too. That that was in New York. I mean, one of the great. U.S. Open matches, rowdy night session, and Sampras never lost a night session is another great thing. Never lost a Wimbledon final. I mean, there's so many things about this guy that are just ridiculous. Yeah, the nighttime conditions in New York suited him well. You know, he didn't like that extreme heat that you could sometimes get at the Open, so and he just he loved it in the under the lights. And uh, maybe guys, it's possible guys had a little more difficulty reading or seeing that serve in those conditions too. It's hard to say, but he it definitely suited him and the great thing excuse me about that night chris the, in those days it was like a wind tunnel in 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 that stadium uh it, it, in arthur ash stadium that's just it just was always windy unlike today where they've built the roof and it actually shields the players from the wind in those days the wind was an ever-present force but for some reason that night against agassi it was calm the conditions were almost perfect it was just the perfect idyllic evening to play tennis and that and they turned the clock back and it was in terms of both Agassi and Sampras on the same night against each other highest quality match they ever played against each other and uh, again all four sets going to tiebreak Sampras coming back from losing the first set tiebreak which he led 6-3 and winning it 
seven six in the fourth and they got a standing ovation right before the start of that last tie break because the crowd knew the match could be ending and so they wanted to be sure that both players knew how much they appreciate him and Sampras said to me that that was that kind of took him out of his usual kind of uh, competitive state for, for, he was sort of conscious of it for maybe 10 seconds it was like oh my god what's going on here and he had then he had to get back to business and start playing but it was it, it it was it was just a an outstanding moment for both of these American players because they weren't cheering for Pete or Andre they were cheering for both of them and they weren't cheering just the performance that night they were cheering them for the breadth and scope of their great careers. And then who would know? Who would know? The great thing about it is they and they might have also thought that they wouldn't see them again on such a big occasion and the next year they did yeah. get that one more chance to see them and not only a big match but the final so it, it they, they had they had quite a history in new york but all four times that sampras played agassi in what i would consider neutral conditions on hard courts because agassi loved hard courts sampras won them all three finals and the one quarter remarkable remarkable and the the, the intensity of both players in that match the the commitment to uh, the, how bad those guys wanted to beat each other they're you just felt a tension and a desire by both guys to get the upper hand on the other one. It's just kind of fascinating to watch those two go at it like that. No, they they, they both were they 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 both were competing competing furiously, and they both were in great form. Agassi's ground game that night was spectacular, and yeah, and for a guy that returns, he wasn't rewarded for some brilliant returning because Sampras volleyed so so uh, so impeccably throughout the four sets. Uh, that a lot of times Agassi would hit the perfect low return and, Ag and Sampras would dig out the low volley. So it, 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 in turn, Sampras played some very good return games, but Agassi was so unyielding from the backcourt that Pete could not get that service break. So it was, it was such a commendable performance on both sides of the net. And finally, the section, Chapter 18, Imagining Sampras against Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal is just wonderful. There's so many people you speak to and have fun with on this, you know, this subject that we really will never know how it, how it would play out, how, what a Sampras-Federer match would look at, like on center court, or what, you know, how Sampras would fare against Nadal. But so many interesting comments from so many uh, people, Martina Navratilova, Goran spoke, I mean, Rafter was in this section, Tracy Austin, I mean, Lendl. It's great. What are you, what are some of your takeaways? What surprised you? And, uh, you know, what did you learn from talking to these great legends about and imagining these potential matchups between Sampras and the big three? I think that what I learned was that they, uh, to, a, to a man and woman, they all seemed to feel the way I did. I didn't see, and there was not one of them that said, no, I'm sorry that, that uh, Pete was a great player, but he couldn't stay with these guys. It wouldn't happen. No, the, the debate was only about who, how would he match up against each of them and the surface. Yeah. The, you know, Rafa, Roger, Novak, and, and the particular surfaces and who went in. And I, I loved having Pete weigh in himself about it. And I, and I, you know, there were some, obviously, who felt that Rafa – it, Novak felt that. I thought it was interesting to get Novak's views on that. I thought that was a very, very interesting to hear Djokovic say that he thought that Pete might have preferred to play him and Roger as opposed to Rafa because of the Rafa spin, as he put it. But, but I, I, and I didn't inject myself too much in that. I would only argue on that point that yes, no doubt, if you, he would not have wanted any part of playing Rafa on clay. But indoors, hard courts, grass courts, even the grass as it plays today, I don't think Rafa would have would have had a chance to employ the topspin in the same way because Pete would have been constantly breathing down his neck and attacking and keeping points short and serving and volleying and chipping and charging. And those are Rafa's not wild about playing that kind of player, and he doesn't face it very often. He doesn't face any bit of the caliber of Sampras at all who plays that way. So I think he would have had some real headaches with that. But I just I thought that the important thing was just the reverence that they all had in terms of how he could have you you put it, you put him into the time capsule and, and out there on the court against these guys and how well he would have fared. And even even Isovich, Goran felt he would do very well against both uh, Rafa and Novak. He didn't comment so much on the Federer matchup, but he felt like against Rafa and Novak that Pete would do well and that they would not have enjoyed playing him. And that was just before Djokovic. 
uh, hired Ivan Isovich to come into his coaching camp. So I, yeah, I, I enjoyed that chapter a lot. I tried to let them do most of the talking, leave myself out of that. I'm just offering you my views now because in my view, he could have done quite well against all three. The one exception would be not Rafon Clay, but nobody wants to. <laughs> who wants no, to play Rafon Clay? That. But aside from yeah. that, on quicker courts, indoors, hard courts, grass courts, uh, I think Sampras would have done really quite well against all three. And and he talked about the exhibitions with Roger and how he felt comfortable, how comfortable he felt playing him. And he said that very respectfully because he also ta- made some really. Uh, offered some very high praise for Roger, the player, but he just felt that having experienced the one match in Wimbledon, but more so even just the exhibitions that they played in 07 and 08, that he could, you know, the matchup would not have, have, have bothered him. He would have, he would have been comfortable playing him. And I think he, he feels the same way about the other two. He had a supreme confidence, but it never, he never crossed the line into arrogance. Yeah. There's two two more things I want to touch on quickly. One on this particular section that we're speaking about, and yes, you mentioned Sampras's takes were probably the most interesting of all because he's still got this competitive mindset. He's talking about how he would approach playing Rafa. I said, well, Rafa stays back a lot. I think I could really get in on him and and move him around and and use that. And then and then he I was some. Um, kind of impressed and surprised that he was a little bit worried about facing Djokovic's return and uh, Djokovic's reach and saying how he had a easier time maybe serving against Agassi, that no- Novak was a better athlete and also had a little bit more reach. And uh, I think in his mind, he was a little bit worried about that matchup. Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think in, it, he may have, he felt, I th- you get the feeling that he felt that perhaps the Djokovic matchup would be the toughest. On the other hand, yes. not to the point where he's saying, I don't know how I could have beaten Djokovic. I think he feels like he still just would have attacked full force. And he knows, I think he knows he just would have had to serve with pinpoint precision. But that was one of his strengths, one of his most underrated strengths. It wasn't the speed gun. He did, he was happy to serve 127, 129, 131. Let Rosetsky and Filipusis, Ivanisovic, let them go 140. He didn't care. It, it was plenty big enough the way he served, but it was that he could put it on a dime. And I think when he played Novak, he would have been so respectful of the reach you described that he would have he would have put a premium on the placement when he played Novak. And that and Mary Carrillo said she she thought those matches would have been just dandies, and and I agree. I'm dying to see those matches. <laughs> It'll be incredible. Put those on right now. I'm ready. Um, yeah. But uh, Sampras's serve, you mentioned it kind of poetically in a, in a few sections, just the, the the cadence, the athleticism, the flexibility. I, just um, watching it last night as I rewatched that um, match against Andre in 2001 at the U.S. Open, it's just such a beautiful shot. It's so repeatable. There's, it's, it's really just a beautiful, beautiful physical athletic serve. Well, just I don't, I hate to lose, use cliches, and I, I try to avoid them in my writing or even when I'm talking. But it really was, in essence, poetry in motion. It was such an elegant motion, and I, there was, I never forget seeing a picture of him. Chris, about to serve to Agassi in that 99 Wimbledon final. It's a beautiful sort of two-page color shot in one of the Wimbledon annual books. And you look, he looks as if he's just out there on a Sunday afternoon in some park. And you would think he was just about to hit a warm-up, sir, but this is in the middle of a set because you can see the scoreboard behind Agassi. And it's, and it's amazing how the way he would just start off with such ease and elegance and then unleash these bombs. But but do it in a way that was really a pleasure to watch for all of us who appreciated the game because the motion was so perfect. Closest thing I can think of to that motion was Pancho Gonzalez, and who, of course, is a great American player in the late 40s into the early stages of the open era. And Pancho's serve reminded me a lot of Pete's in, in the, the beauty of the uh, mechanics. And, and uh, lastly, before we, we talk a little bit about where folks can get this book, I just want to talk a little bit about your relationship with Pete Sampras. I mean, you seem to develop quite a rapport with Pete over the years. You mentioned numerous times in the book of interviews you had with him throughout his career as he was playing. And then, of course, these many interviews you did for the book. What is that experience like? How were you able to get close to a man who really isn't close to many people? And, you know, what can you tell me about getting what it's been like to get to know Pete so well and to finally um, cap it all off by putting out this great book? Probably it's a great question. A variety of factors where I didn't actually, 
I did a bunch of interviews on the telephone with him when he was in the earlier stages of his career, starting really not until 92. And then I met him in 95 and we continued. I, I sat down with him for the first time for an interview in 96 in Madison Square Garden at the year end. They were playing a, an exhibition. But I'd had a bunch over the phone, and, and they knew me well by then, and it continued. And then these interviews continued after he retired. I continued to do sort of annual or semi-annual interviews with him uh, post-retirement. And I think that I think the key to it was that we did we did establish a rapport, and I think he knew I was serious about the game. I think I think he respected my knowledge of the game. That's what came through to me. And they're they're just they're just there just was a, um, a kind of a mutual respect that we shared and uh, that I it continues to this day. So that I was able to comfortably go to him. Uh, I was able to comfortably go to him when I was getting ready to do this book and get, get, you know, his assurances that he would cooperate with me and talk to me. And, and then he was terrific through the process because he never, I, 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 it went, I, I needed more hours than I thought initially. And he was like, don't worry about it. I'm enjoying the reminiscing and, he would always make himself available, and it's it's hard to say why why it happened, but I think that the mutual respect was always there, and he knew how much I appreciated what he was doing, and I think he just saw me as a as a serious reporter, you know, who was just trying to do his job and that understood what he was trying to do on a court. And we also shared a few humorous moments. There were times I think that it also helped that I would sometimes at the end of an interview. Uh, I would get him to play a practical joke on a friend if I was taping it and I'd set the scene yeah. for him and say that and he would and he was terrific he would and and he would then just launch into it and then ask me afterwards how did I do how was that so you know I I knew he had that humor and then I think that enabled him to see that I also had the humor just by doing just by asking him to play the practical joke so I guess there were a, a lot of things that led to it but I I you know it to me it meant a lot that because you're right there weren't that many of us, you know, he, he was guarded in the sense that yeah, if he trusted you, he really did open up and he was terrific. And, but it wasn't everybody. And that, that just wasn't his nature because he's such a private person. So for me, it's, it's been richly rewarding that he kind of brought me into his world that way and in a professional sense and allow and shared so much with me. And he couldn't have been any better in cooperating for this book. Uh, yeah, because in my opinion, that's what makes greatness revisited so truly great is that we get so much of Pete Sampras in this book, a player who is, you know, like we like we talked about, kept it close to the vest. You're unearthing so much about its personality. And we, we you know, it's basically like we're it's it's his book. There's so much insight into him as a person, who he is now, who he was then. It's that's that's really what made it great. So fantastic achievement by you for for putting this out there and, and kind of letting us revisit Pete Sampras. Well, thank you, Chris. Those are very kind words, and I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, so tell us, it's almost September 1st. This book is going to finally uh, actually officially become available. Where can the readers get a hold of it? Well, I see, obviously, in, in this pandemic age, I think the, probably the easiest way would be go to on, on Amazon or other online sites, I suppose Barnes & Noble. Amazon, I would think, is the easiest, and... And yes, September 1st, so we're, we're closing in on it now, and, and I'm excited about it because it ties into the 30-year anniversary of winning that first U.S. Open in 90, and then, of course, the, the, the bookend at the 2002 Open. So it seems like the perfect timing that, we're, that during the tournament where he won his first and last majors, that's the time frame when the book comes out. So I'm, I'm excited about it. Yeah, it's perfect. It's great, Steve. Um, so, yeah, you guys go out to Amazon Look up Greatness Revisited by Steve Flink with a forward by another legend, Chris Everett. Um, it's available September 1st. You guys check it out, pick it up. And Steve, it's always a pleasure to talk about this. I'm so glad we got to double up and spend a couple of hours kind of having you give me some more insight into a book, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Well, thank you, uh, Chris, for hosting this and for giving me the chance to talk in such depth about the book. And I can only add that for the listeners, they should realize that you and I have, even though we've done two long sessions and discussed things so thoroughly, there's there's a lot more on those pages. I can assure the the, the listeners of that, and you know it. I think from having read it that that there's, it's a long and and uh, I hope a precise account of, of of Pete's career and an examination of his character and 
we have all the other players weighing in, and I think there'd be so many other nice things for the reader to um, to experience if they if they buy the book that you and I that even in these couple of hours that we've spent talking we haven't touched on. Well, he is tennis Hall of Famer Steve Flink. The book is Pete Sampras: Greatness Revisited. You guys go out and read it, and Steve. Huge pleasure once again speaking with you, and I'm um, looking forward to talking to you down the road. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much. This edition of the Lucky Let Cord podcast is a wrap. Special guest, Steve Flink. Thank you so much for spending time with us and talking about your great book. You guys know what to do next. Head over to Amazon, wherever get your books, pick up a copy, learn more about the legend of the great Pete Sampras. Thank you guys for listening. Don't forget you can find us on iTunes and we'd like it if you rate and reviewed this podcast. Just go over to Apple Podcasts, type in Lucky Letcord Podcast and voila. We really appreciate your feedback on this podcast. You can also check out Tennis Now on the web at facebook.com slash tennis now on Twitter at tennis underscore now. Check us on the web for all the news from the U.S. Open at www.tennisnow.com. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the tennis, everybody.